HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Claudette Zepeda. In today's episode, we'll talk to Claudette about her journey as a top Latina chef, lifting up Mexican cuisine, and we'll hear Claudette's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We know that Julia loved to travel relishing how it broadened her understanding of the world, especially the power of food, to bridge cultural divides. These experiences helped her become one of America's most well-known ambassadors for French cooking. In Julia's time, Mexican food was not the mainstay of American culture like it is today. But that's not to say there aren't connections. In fact, Julia said one of her first memories of dining at a restaurant is going to Caesars in Tijuana. Its proprietor, Caesar Cardini, invented the eponymous Caesar salad, a novelty when Julia first sampled it in the mid-1920s, as fresh lettuce was pretty rare then. I bet you didn't know Caesar salad was invented in Mexico. You may be more familiar with La Superica Taqueria, one of Santa Barbara's most recommended Mexican eateries, which Julia helped put on the map. It remains as popular and authentic as ever. They still make their tortillas from scratch, and they only take cash. Further, three of the Julia Child Award recipients, to date, 
Rick Bayless, Mary Sue Milliken, and Susan Feniger have followed in Julia's footsteps by showcasing how diverse and elevated Mexican food can be. Someone else who models herself as a cultural ambassador and advocate for the sophisticated pleasures of Mexican food is Chef Claudette Zepeda. Claudette garnered national acclaim as the executive chef and partner at El Jardin, a San Diego restaurant highlighting regional Mexican food. Named both Eater San Diego and San Diego Union Tribune's Chef of the Year in 2018, Claudette was a James Beard semifinalist for Best Chef in the West in 2019. Prior to El Jardin, she was chef de cuisine at Javier Placencia's Bracero and competed on Top Chef Season 15 and Top Chef Mexico. Claudette is also the founder of Viva La Vida, which supports single mothers across Mexico to export heirloom ingredients previously unavailable in the U.S. Named for a Frida Kahlo quote, the company supports micro-businesses to help women overcome generational poverty. Claudette is currently the creative director at Vaga in the Alila Morea Beach Resort in Encinitas, along San Diego's beautiful North County coast, where she oversees menus that combine her global wanderlust with local flavors. Claudette joins us today to talk about her passion for Mexican cuisine and how she's working to foster change and understanding through cooking. Welcome to the podcast, Claudette. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I know a lot has happened well, to everybody in the last few years, but in particular, <laughs> a lot has evolved and changed in your career. And so I, th- I th- would like to hear sort of you've had quite the COVID journey, it seems, at least professionally. Could you just kind of tell us sort of where you've been, where you've come, where you've ended up? Yeah. So, well, I think everyone had the kind of the valley, the peaks and valleys of COVID, uh, similar stories, at least in our industry. Uh, our industry is obviously still kind of crawling out of it, um, really, really beat up. But when 2020 hit, my calendar had been stacked with events. I didn't have a restaurant, but I had a lot of speaking engagements, a lot of traveling collaborations, and all of a sudden the calendar got wiped clean. So I... <laughs> did what we do in our industry, and I pivoted hard and started doing online classes, taught myself how to program my website to be an e-commerce site, mm. and started creating a, kind of these interesting relationships with people all over the United States that were taking my classes, and they became my students, so to speak. So they were small classes, and I taught the recipes for the restaurant online. And it really gave me an opportunity to have that human connection still and talk about my food and uh, teach people the different stories that come along with the recipes that I was teaching them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, fast forward 2021, March, we opened the resort. It was a ground up build in the last bluff in San Diego. Mm. And when I got pitched the project, I was still at El Jardín. Um, and by the end of the year in 2019, I was done. So I said, you know, why don't I take the project on as executive chef? <laughs> that was a really big undertaking, to say the least, mm. as an executive chef of a resort and all that it entails, the different you know, food outlets when I was generally independent restaurant you know, career. Um, and I learned kind of a baptism by fire. I opened the property, uh, like every single detail, the plates, the forks, the napkins, everything was picked out by me and the entire property on the food side. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Reopen Vaga, which is a nickname that I've had my entire life. My grandmother was also a Vaga, which is a, um, the etymology of the word is vagabond. Obviously, the mm. the connotation that you're kind of the wanderlust, the the street kid in Spanish, we use it to call that to kids that can't stay at home that are always wandering the streets. So I was, mm. I'm Vaga. So I think Julia and I have that kindred spirit of uh, curiosity and exploring is something that's part of my DNA. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, last year in August, September, so around that time, I was offered a licensing deal with the hotel uh, to explore more of what makes me creative and what makes me me. And so mm-hmm. I got to step away from the property on the everyday operation and uh, lend my name and likeness, all that good stuff that usually only gets afforded to men in our industry. And I took that with, you know, it was a little bit hard. It's a different career pivot to have uh, a normal chef. I'm used to being on the line with my guys, being able to help them. And now I just get to be the creative. I call myself the fun ant. You know, I just mm. get to pop in, change recipes and be creative and teach, which is something that I, I am, have a huge passion for. And uh, so get to be a Vaga. So get to travel. So get to do collaborations with friends all over the United States, all over the world. And as soon as uh, we fully open up, I still feel like there's a little bit of COVID left. Um, I'm excited to keep exploring and keep going into the history of our food. And do you see yourself, I don't know how much you taught before you started doing the online classes, but do you see, has that been something that you enjoyed when you had time or you feel like is kind of now like more a part of you that you want to always continue? Well, you know, as a chef, as a mentor, we, we teach because that's part of our job. You know, we just, mm-hmm. it's our, it's our staff that we teach. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely have that inclination. I have the patience for teaching, uh, when it comes to technique, when it comes to recipes and the history. So I still do it. I still do online classes through my William Sonoma collaboration on the chef's collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and here or there on the corporate side. But I, I think that Right now, a lot of my my teaching or you know my history lessons, so to speak, are uh, I use social media as a platform to teach people about ingredients that, that they've never seen. I see. And speaking of ingredients, I wanted to talk to you about your food. One of the recipes that you're well known for are your berilla tacos. But I know that beyond just that one recipe that you've talked about, tacos have actually kind of deeper meaning and, and representation for you. Could you could you tell us sort of what the taco means to you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a conversation that Mexicans, we always kind of chuckle when people really want to put a specific box around tacos. And when I was growing up, everything it, it was a BYOT. Everything was a build your own taco. Uh, at home, you don't uh, get tacos served. You get a plate and it's a tortillas on the side. Uh, any restaurant in Mexico won't, you know, very, very few have actual tacos on their menu because we leave that to the taqueros. You know, it's like, let them do what they do well. Why would you want to compete against a taquero? So mm-hmm. tacos for me is everything. Anything can be a taco. There's no specific, uh, you know, spine of ingredients that you must have in it or build. To me, a taco is anything warm that fits inside of the shell of a taco of a freshly made tortilla can be a taco. But I think that's a great definition of like it. (laughs) But I felt like there's also something that you felt like in some ways, just like you're saying that there's a perception 
it's sort of like you like one of those SAT things like taco is to Mexican food as you know street food is to something else like it's not important it's 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 why Mexican food should be you know cheap and just from a roadside stand Uh, rather than anything else right I mean yeah if you think of what goes into a taco like a birria taco there's so much labor in it tacos aren't fast food you know, anything that any braised meat that you have received from a taco or a Mexican restaurant or a stand like a birria stand that is famous in Tijuana where I buy my birria tacos, it's days sometimes of labor, right? To make a tortilla, it's two days of work. You let it steep for 24 hours, the nixtamalization, then you grind it, that you marinate your meat overnight. If it's a marinade smoke, if it's a brine smoke, if it's a if you have to butcher your animal, there's no such thing as fast food in Mexico. And is is that sort of a takeaway that you wish people understood better that, you know, particularly one of the underpinnings of Mexican food is that in some ways it is slow food, at least when it's done properly. And while you can cheapen it, the best stuff is 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 done with care and labor and time. Absolutely. I think that uh, we we take for granted one of the oldest cuisines on earth because, you know, it is you know, a developing nation to some people, but then you go there and you see like the Silicon Valley of the world is really in Guadalajara. And so you see all these different juxtapositions of opinions of what Mexico is. And we are such a diverse culture and uh, through history, you know, from pre-colonial, from civilizations that we don't even know that disappeared, right? But they left their buildings, they left their tools. There's so much that we don't appreciate in this country when it comes to Mexican food and we cheapen it. Uh, But really it's, if you just ask someone a little bit of their story when you're in Mexico, your brain just kind of like opens up to the possibilities. So I always say, you know, just come with an open mind and a big, in an empty stomach. That's one of those cliche sentences, but it's very true of Mexican cuisine. It's, definitely not what meets the eye. So that's actually a great um, lead into my next question, because I heard you in an interview call yourself a a Mexican cultural anthropologist, which which you were (laughs) kind of getting at, which I love. But sort of, can you explain, I mean, I think those words make sense, but how do they then connect with being a chef and cooking? Well, I think that and, you know, many of my contemporaries say this often, and it's, uh, you know, chefs, we make food, yes, that's part of our job, but really we are, are the we're the storytellers. We're the storytellers with a pan instead of a pen. Um, we have the not everyone, not everyone cares to, you know, sometimes people and also people sometimes aren't receptive to it. They're just like, give me the food and shut up. Uh, but <laughs> I think that we have uh, especially when we cook food of our our culture and our roots and our family, um, telling the story. I think, in my opinion, when I hear a story about cuisine, it makes me want it more. It makes it taste better. It makes it feel more like you feel more satiated when you're tasting it, right? And the culinary anthropology side of it is because we have such a very specific version of what Mexican food is, because generally the stories are told by Americans about Mexico, like you know, Susan, like Rick Bayless, like, how about we tell it through a Mexican's perspective, through our lens of what it was to grow up there. And then I have read as many books, I have about 500 different books of history of Mexico that have nothing to do with cookbooks, but they have to do with 
you know, the storytelling around a dinner table. And then I, that's where I get snippets of in the 1920s, they ate this, you know, Mexicans, another kind of Julia tie-in is we're the biggest Francophiles. Uh, my name is Claudette, Amy, <laughs> like they're very French. Um, so we, our culture and our cuisine, you can't tell the story of it without telling the story of the history. And I wanted to be, when I opened El Jardín, I wanted to be as well-versed in our story. So, you know, I, ironically enough, most of the guests that would come in and say that our food was not Mexican were Mexicans. So to be able to have the cultural anthropology side of it, the history of humans in our country through culinary's perspective, um, to be able to have that story to back it up and say, actually, in the 19, you know, in the 1560s, everything changed. In the 17, late 1700s, early 1800s, when Italians landed in the coast of Veracruz and we got pasta, and then all of these things open up a conversation of humanity and of open-mindedness. And I have gone to tables to tell the story when someone says something's not Mexican and their eyes roll to the back of their head because they don't really, they're not open to it. And mm. then there's those other times where people are like, I had no idea. Thank you so much. And I feel like that's a win, right? Like the, the cultural anthropology and the culinary anthropology of, of food as old as ours, I think it's a big part of understanding how we got to it. So when I hear the words authentic or, or traditional, I, I like to say classic because they are classic dishes, but authenticity is very you know autonomous. I'm authentically me uh, and traditional you can go to any any town and within a one block radius hit every single home that has different traditions because they all come from different places. You know, Mexico in itself is a very uh, transient country. If my family, for instance, my grandmother on my mom's side was born in Jalisco, but by the time the youngest uncle was born, he was born in Tijuana with my mom. So every single child, 16 kids later, were born across the from the central part of Mexico all the way to the north. We're very um, you know, gypsy in the way um, because people moved where the economy was. If there wasn't business in their small little town, they moved. So with that, traditions move. Everything is static. Or sorry, traditions aren't static. I mean, and so it's very it's very one dimensional if you look at it as well. This isn't traditional. Well, what is tradition? That's always my my follow up question. Well, what is authentic? I mean, I'm authentic. You know, I'm Mexican, therefore the food is Mexican. Right, yeah, and food is always evolving, and it, and it can never stay the same. And especially, I was going to say that you were alluding to also, Mexico is a pretty big country. It's It Huge. spans a very big sort of distance to even more than its like exact size, right? You're going from the Caribbean mm -hmm. and the Atlantic and the Gulf all the way to the Pacific, which are radically different temperatures and all, yeah. uh, all of those things, and that... As a result, like seeing what is authentic. And the funny thing is I remember, um, it, I think it was here in London, but it may not be. But someone had like referred to like chili as a Mexican dish. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. um, okay. <laughs> I was like, only in England is that true. And yeah. but, but it's funny how distorted the view of what is and what isn't and you're right like you kind of get these people who push back because they want things to be one way and defined but then a lot of people are just like oh i'm prepared to learn this is really interesting and mm -hmm. food is a really memorable way to learn and kind of actually an easier way to like i think change people's perceptions but they have to be open 
Right. I think that one of my favorite things to say is like food's just my gateway drug. I can get people to the table and be like, here, I'm going to feed you. And then when they sit down, here's a lesson on humanity. And then it's like, woof, their world just opens up. And that's beautiful. Like I love talking about what makes us similar rather than what makes us different. Mexico as a whole had so many, has so many, like what you alluded to, has so many different microclimates that we can grow everything under the sun. So during all the colonization periods and during all of the slave trades and the spice trade world, we got so many different ethnicities that changed our cuisine at the core, right? We want to talk about indigenous food or that Mexican is not, you know, is is only from Mexico. Well, then you have to cut out onions. You have to cut out all these other ingredients, onions, papayas, mame, all these ingredients that landed there through these really kind of awful periods of history and then say, okay, this is indigenous food has only tomatoes and chiles. And then they're going to say it doesn't have enough flavor. Exactly. Thank you to this culture. Thank you to that <laughs> culture. Right. And it's no, you're right. It's been that global thing. Like I always think it's mind blowing to think about particularly for Americans, how much tomatoes and tomato sauce are part of Italian food. But of mm-hmm. course, tomatoes didn't exist in Italy until a certain right. point in history, and they came from the New World. And same with potatoes, yep. which are like so associated with Ireland, except Ireland didn't have them, yep. you know, 500 years ago. So it's, yeah, no, I think that, I think it's endlessly fascinating. And I think it's important, that idea that 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 food and culture it has been moving and evolving and intertwining and anybody who can showcase that and share that i think is is like you said it it ultimately just breeds understanding it it should yeah that's the the, the operative word there is it should in mexico was the the europeans uh, there was a, at one point in history the mexican dream Europe, Europeans were sold that go to this land, they have all these natural riches and resources, set up businesses and come back home rich, but they never left, right? They landed in Mexico, made businesses, and they stayed because no one really goes back home once they travel that far. So we we were the land of opportunity for uh, many, many European countries. So yeah, it's it's wild. When you open up that Pandora's box of our history, it is wild. All right. After the break, we're going to come back with more from Chef Claudette Zapata about expanding our appreciation of all the potential in Mexican food. Stay with us. I'm Chava Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 
It when it has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Claudette Zapeta about her journey as a top chef and her advocacy for understanding Mexican cuisine. So I wanted to shift Claudette just a little bit because you brought this up before about mentorship. And certainly for Julia, being a mentor was part of who she was. I, I'm not even sure she was, like did it consciously. I think it was just like you were saying that chefs are natural teachers. She was a natural teacher and thus she was also a natural mentor. But you've also talked about how when you were growing up and we talked about how, you know, if you will, Rick Bayless and Susan Feniger and Mary Sue Milliken have been more – recognized for their expansion of Americans' knowledge of Mexican food than other pe- than necessarily people of Mexican descent. And so did you do you now see yourself in for what you've done as more of a role model? And does that are you conscious of that in in your professional decision making? Oh absolutely. Uh absolutely. I think mentorship, the thing people that aren't in our industry don't really understand it and, and they shouldn't. It's, it's really very much a part of our world is uh, the people that end up in kitchens have a desire or have a need to belong to some sort of family unit because of, you know, they, maybe they didn't have it. You know, they, there's a quote of we're a band of misfits. Uh, and we are for many different reasons. Kitchens lend themselves for a very specific personality type. And uh, many of those same personality types desire knowledge and uh, a a mentor happens, you know, you find mentors very organically by having someone nurture your, your thirst for knowledge and curiosity. Um, And that is a part of my job that I take so incredibly serious when it comes to, you know, what I say, how I move in the world and uh, my dedication to being better as a human rather than just as a chef or, you know, I'm I'm a mother of two teenagers, 18 and 16. So everything that I do is very, um, very thoughtful in nature because I know so many people, especially with, you know, social media, so many people are looking at me to give me some sort of guide, to give them some sort of guidance. When I was coming up in the industry, no one looked like me. No one had my story. Single mother, you know, welfare recipient for many years as my kids were little when we were struggling. And uh, I've been doing this almost 22 years. So there's a, a very conscious way of looking at how I you know, what my part in this industry um, is and what I do for the next generation of cooks. For me, it happened very organically where I just had people that just gravitated towards me. And now I'm very thankful that I can pick up the phone and I call them my A-team and I can assemble a team of cooks within a couple of hours, if not less than that. Like, when I, if I have an event, uh, I can put up on social media that I have an event in the middle of Palm Desert. And if I could have hands and within a couple hours, I have 20 volunteers. So that's something that I have, I'm very thankful for. And I have created uh, a sort of band of misfits. Uh, you know, I call myself the Peter Pan and those are my lost boys and girls. And we all just don't want to grow up. All we want to do is eat. And we want to have that like the hook moment of Robin, you know, Robin Williams, Mm -hmm. like believe Mm -hmm. you have to believe. And the table turns into that's really what I want to do. I want everyone to believe in themselves and believe that food is just 
so magical and it has the power to pull people out of the darkest points in their life um, if they are open and willing. And that same thing that we, we talk about diners, I, I do that in my kitchen with my cooks. You know, I, I, I try to mentor them to find what makes them tick because it might not, you know, they might not be Mexican. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are from. Mexico is just the gateway to be like, well, what do you eat at home? What is your family history? And that ends up being something that all of a sudden they pivot and, you know, they're, they're doing pop-ups on German American cuisine. And that is so, so gratifying. And do you think there are becoming more use in the food world now, or do you still see that as, as a mountain to climb? mentorship or well in terms of you because you were saying that you're you didn't have role models who looked like Mm -hmm. you and and had your lived experience do you Mm -hmm. see other people emerging or do you still think that there's you know kind of an existing patriarchy that hasn't evolved that much in that regard I feel like it's going in the right direction. There is still definitely, it's still very male dominated. uh, But I think more and more people want to hear different stories and see different faces. Uh, And, you know, media has a role to play in that world. If you keep writing about the same people, how can we learn about, you know, new talent coming up? And I'm not speaking about myself. It's just literally one of my favorite places to go to eat is Mexico City and see all the emerging talent that, yes, worked for Olvera, but... Olvera's not cooking anymore. He's a proper restaurateur. And really who you, the talent in his kitchens are the cooks, you know, the, the cooks that make his food are really these all-stars and they go off and open their restaurants and that's who I want to support. But if we don't talk about that, we'll always be talking about Enrique Olvera, Rick Bayless, Susan, you know, all these people that have built their careers and that's great but what about the new talent right Mm. so I think we're going in the right direction uh, but we are still I still see a lack of representation on you know particularly like Mexican cooks doing Mexican food in the in uh, mainstream media Um, there's still a little bit of uh, an uphill battle there I mean and there's high there's good points and bad points obviously if you don't have a story to tell it's hard to sell your story uh, but I think that we're headed in the right direction. Do you think some of that is that the people who have those stories don't actually kind of have a, a feeling of, well, people want to hear from me and or even more, I deserve to be there? Oh, yeah. I mean, imposter syndrome is real. And who really wants to talk about that they once collected welfare and sit in the food stamp line? You know, I don't want to talk about it, but I feel like I need to. Because that alone gets me all of a sudden I have a hundred direct messages on social media saying I am in this place and I never really thought of the light at the end of the tunnel until I heard your story and you give me hope. And that is so powerful. So I think that we, you know, we, I owe it to my community to talk about my story as messy and as ugly as, you know, it is at the same time, it, it has made me the person that I am. You know, I have a friend that was, that is a DACA recipient and has worked in some of the best restaurants in California. And his mom immigrated into the country when he was a baby. So he doesn't know Mexico and he looks extremely, he's indigenous. Uh, and so he looks extremely Mexican. And we had the conversation of he was embarrassed to cook our food because, you know, to most Americans, it's tacos, rice, beans, enchiladas, burritos. And I kind of you know, had the conversation of, well, are you embarrassed? And a lot of people 
are made to feel less than when you are a you know brown black asian descent it's there's this imposter syndrome there's this i i don't deserve this there's this uh kind of this toxic belief that we need to be submissive and i i want to shake that cage and make sure that every single person sees themselves as a worthy story to tell um regardless of you know what they look like or what their family's history is tell it cuz you never know you never know who you will inspire well i think i think that's so moving and and wonderful to hear and i i think the irony for me is in in you sharing that about yourself it it's inspiring and it's inspiring to me who hasn't been on welfare so i can only imagine but it, i also recognize that it's a lot easier story for you to tell in the success that you've worked hard to achieve than at the moment where you're like you said, feeling like an imposter, you don't fit in or that you'll be judged in particular. Mm-hmm. And um, But I, I personally think there's no more inspiring story than someone who has been handed few advantages and despite that has done everything they could and and followed their passion. Obviously, you could you could have picked a more lucrative potential career, like just being a yeah. dentist in Tijuana would be yeah. you know more stable and all that. Maybe not more fun, but you could have chosen yeah. that. Um, yeah, I admire anyone definitely. who can choose to be a dentist because it is very stable, but I couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, me neither. I wanted, I was curious also, this is sort of a different side of the same coin that we're talking about in that, you know, I think the pandemic exposed weaknesses and inequities in the food system that I think even shocked people in the food community who knew something about it, but not the depth of it. And I think while we're talking about Mexican food and Mexicans and Hispanic people, it's also clear that there was a particular burden on Latinx people. And Mm -hmm. I was curious from your world, and and if I I didn't mention, you're still based in San Diego, which is obviously heavily um, Latino and, and Mexican. Do you think that change is happening or or even more particularly Latinx people feel more empowered or more valued or is it there's sort of a, a certain jadedness that they were like well we all knew this and that's just what we're dealing with I think it's a mixed bag I think of you know you in a group of people sometimes it's 50/50 of like eh an indifference of like it is what it is it's never changed and then there's another half of it they're optimistic and you know, my brother and I used to joke when when the, the banking crisis it was 2012 or something like that. Like, well, we've always been poor, so we don't really feel it. So it's it, it's this different kind of opinion. What we see during the pandemic in Latin communities is we are the heartbeat of the restaurant industry. Uh, many different ethnicities make up the back of house, uh, but for the most part, it's people that and farming. Um, it's people that come from Latin backgrounds, Latinx backgrounds. So if you don't value those, get ready to pay a lot more money for food. But do you think we should, uh, to me, it says that for years, we have relied upon and expected food to be cheap. And the revelation is that was on the back of laborers who were not only underpaid, their entire existence was precarious. It wasn't just the pay, they didn't have savings, they didn't have health care, they weren't looked after in any way, and yet they were feeding the country. 
and yeah. that that value proposition is is wrong. And absolutely, yeah. And I think in particular in California, which produces so much, or particularly the, the nation's fruits and vegetables, how predominant that issue is. And I, I, I like my sincere hope is that we figure out ways to sustain that attention because I do worry that you know it's going to go back to just enjoying things like Coachella and concerts and uh, and yeah. it will unfortunately right it's sort of like inertia that it will just kind of go back to the way it was yeah i always i, I the question excuse me the question that i pose um to people when they're having the conversation of you know how expensive food is getting or you know how expensive all of a sudden you know a, a head of lettuces. And my question to them is always, do you know that when you pay 50 cents for a lettuce head or, uh, you know, a dollar for that apple, that person on the field is getting pennies. So the cheaper that you pay for the groceries, the less money the people on the fields are actually getting from that. So there's a very trickle down economics in a very, very uh, not so beautiful way. So there's you know, San, California, San Diego is extremely expensive to live here. You'll have, uh, you know, homes with Mexican immigrants or, you know, Latino families that are 10 people to one bedroom because that's how they, that's the only way that they can sustain themselves. But yet, yeah, they're working in a fine dining restaurant where it's $200 a head to eat there. So there's this very, I mean, I remember being on welfare and working in fine dining and seeing tables be crumbed and, you know, the tablecloths and we couldn't make eye contact with the people. And I was going home and eating, you know, my lights had gotten shut off and I was going home and eating white bread with, you know, bologna and American cheese because that's what I got at the wick line. So there's this really this disconnect on valuing humans because if we don't see them, they don't bother us. So I've... Thankfully, the last few restaurants that I've had, I've had open kitchens so you can see our faces and you can see the people that actually feed you and hopefully that people value them more. But as far as, you know, understanding that and being willing to pay a little bit more or willing to see the humans behind the food, I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I think I, I... I pose a similar question to people and have changed my habits. I almost see it a little bit more with clothing too, that, you know, cheap clothing retailers, you're like, how is it possible that something I could not make myself costs $5? Like what has to happen to get something that's made halfway around the world into a shop that, you know, I wouldn't even know how to make? How, How is that possible? There's no way it's possible except on the backs of people who have nothing. That's the only yeah. way to do that. And I think more people have to decide, you know, is it quantity over quality? And do we need as much stuff? Or do we need stuff that that need less stuff that's made in a much fairer way? And um, I hope that's changing. But I agree with you. It, 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 it can be fleeting. So we just have to keep talking about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So switching to the more optimistic, uh, you mentioned your evolved role with Vaga, and I, I love that that name and hearing, hearing the story of, of how you got into that experience. Are there other things that you have coming up that you can announce or things that you're kind of thinking of of, of the direction that you're hoping to take your uh, career? Yeah, so I, 
I, earlier this year, I came to the realization when I started noticing patterns, and we do this, human nature is to ignore the patterns and keep doing the same thing that's not working <laughs> over and over, uh, and learning the very hard lessons with bruises on our shins, and we just keep going, it's fine, it's fine, it's it's okay, but really was uh, this sort of Oprah-esque light bulb aha moment where I realized that I was repeating the same story because I wasn't changing my actions. and. And I, I consider myself to be a great, a great chef in the sort of sense of the community that I build. Um, and I build very specific cultures in restaurants that are very family based. Very, my nickname in restaurants is Mama Bear. Uh, and I got to the point where I realized in order to be different, you have to do different. And I, I started my own company, um, and it's very small. Uh, I'm a broke CEO, but. I hope to open my own restaurant uh, and open a, a sort of home for a safe space for cooks and to continue the story. I call it like the, it's going to be the grown up version of what El Jardín was, mm-hmm. the continuation of our story, of our people, of, of Mexican cuisine, um, and how that is coming to life hasn't really shown itself yet, but my aspirations are to show and to bring to the country um, a very specific point of view of what Mexican culture is in the hospitality world and that the company is going to have a hand in, you know, it's a hospitality company that I started. So I want to do, I want to have my hand in everything that is hospitality, whether it's consulting on menus, whether it's, you know, home goods when it comes to, you know, volcanic tortilleros on your table, the molcajetes, how it's made, uh, consulting on just kitchen builds, how to build a kitchen for cooks, because many kitchens are built by people that have never cooked a day in their life in a professional <laughs> kitchen. Um, so, and and also in the restaurantscape. So there's, I want to create job opportunities. So that's where I'm currently at. I have officially become a CEO of my own company and we, you know, we'll see what this adventure holds. I feel like it's going to be a huge learning curve, but I am so ready to be my own boss. I love that. That sounds exciting. And I guess the the difference was, and, and thank you for, I realized I was pronouncing the Mexican name in French rather than Spanish, but okay. in, the difference with, with um, El Jardin was that you didn't own the restaurant. You were the, the head chef, but it wasn't your, totally your business. Is that one of the distinctions you're sort of drawing? Oh, absolutely. I was hired by an American guy that had went from busser to owner. I had no idea of how to actually run operations that expected completely unrealistic expectations of a restaurant with the service that we had. Mm. And it was a huge footprint. It was 150 seats. Half of it was outside. So if it rained, it was built so shoddy that people would get completely rained on. So though I took all of those lessons. I said, I'm going to build something that no one can take away from me. By the end of El Jardín, I was told, if you can come up with a million dollars, we can save the restaurant. And I started laughing. I said, I still check my bank account before I buy groceries. How do you want me to give you a million dollars? You know, and it, El Jardín was a beautiful start to my, my journey uh, in really leaning in on the matriarchal side of our cuisine. So the new project will be that continuation um, of the history and the food, uh, but a lot more, more grown up, you know, it's, I'm a 20 year overnight success. And I 
still feel like I have a day in this. You know, I still feel like a very big student. I still feel like a creative uh, blindfold has kind of slowly the sun's peeking through this. I don't feel like I've come to even know a, a, a little bit of a lot. You know, it's very... It's this very childlike curiosity that I have with food, which I appreciate, which is what drives me to continue to operate restaurants. So, yeah, El Jardín was not mine because I had no actual cash in it. It was sweat equity that I was given, and it was such a nominal amount that right when I was going to be able to take advantage of the ownership shares, um, my business partner said, we're turning it into a taco shop. And I said, well, that's not what I want to do. And he said, oh, yeah, I know. So you're out. And that was this really hard realization of unless you build something that's yours that no one can take away, it will continue to be taken away. I know I'm fascinated by in terms of this program, you know, we've had Chef Tanya Holland from Oakland, who you may know, and uh, Chef mm-hmm. Asma Khan from London, who are both female chefs who built businesses. And their number one thing that they've said about when people say, why aren't there more female chefs and come up with all kinds of bullshit reasons, the main reason is they don't have the same access to capital, particularly if they're people of color, that um, particularly white men do. And Mm -hmm. that's for people can think whatever they want, but it's ultimately for institutional reasons. So I, I, I love that despite that not changing that dramatically, you're just looking for ways to, to do it. So I, I look forward to hearing the next chapters. (laughs) Yeah, I I laugh because it, I, in my opinion, it's like if you want a business to run successfully, give your money to a single mother. I promise you it will run like clockwork. Or you have rich white guys that buy social media platforms so they can say whatever they want. So it's like uh, you, I would bet on women all day long. <laughs> no, I yeah, I know. It's well, it's that standard thing too that, you know, people worry about immigrants. And I'm always like, yeah. well, first of all, almost everyone in America is an immigrant. And yes. second of all, if you want to bet on someone who's going to work hard and do a lot and risk their life to get somewhere else, that's the person to bet on. The person who stayed home lying down is not the one you want running a business. And mm-hmm. it just how that just totally disappears in the minds of people out of, I guess, fear of other and the unknown astounds me. But I wish people would look at the other side of the coin of how much bravery and gumption and ingenuity it takes to leave home and give up everything you had, even if it wasn't very much, and go somewhere where you know you're not really that going to be that welcome. It, it, yeah. It's 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 an incredible thing. And if you look at in almost every country in the world, the people who have become I mean, even you were referring to Mr. Musk, and he's an immigrant too. You know, yeah. it's like he has an immigrant story. And it it's you know, it's astounding to me. But I'm I'm excited to hear what you're embarking on and we'll look forward to hearing more. We're gonna take a break and then we'll hear Claudette's Julia moment. The 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara from the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience kicks off on Monday, May 16th through Sunday the 22nd, all around Santa Barbara County. Santa Barbara Restaurant Week will offer special menus and cocktails inspired by Julia and Paul Child, while the Taste of Santa Barbara features a series of curated events on May 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd, which include talks, tastings, a screening of the Julia documentary featuring its Oscar-nominated directors, 
farm tours, as well as an immersive wine tasting at El Presidio. For tickets and more information, go to sbce.events and click on Taste of Santa Barbara. For the latest event updates, follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. Did you watch season one of HBO Max's Julia, starring Sarah Lancashire, or the Julia Child Challenge on Food Network? That's still available to stream on Discovery Plus, and Julia will be back on HBO Max for a just-announced second season. Yay! Let us know what you think. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Claudette, what's your Julia moment? Oh, God, I have so many. But the one that I I hold very close, and actually when I tried to go to culinary school, I wrote it as my essay. It was Julia Child was such a figure in our household, such a warm presence in our household when we were growing up in Tijuana we were learning English the same time my parents my mom was um and Julia Child is my mom was learning how to cook while she was learning how to speak English so Julia Child was always on TV we had PBS when we lived in Tijuana and we were we learned English when watching TV and Julia Child her voice was just like it would reverberate through an entire household and my mom would watch it so loud while the pots were going crazy um and you know, when she had the show with Jacques and how they cooked. And I was just, I didn't realize how much of a, like an influence they would have in my life and how, how I would pull these memories out. Cause it didn't resonate until I had to write that essay of like, well, why do I love food? Oh, 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 I had those moments, you know, and she taught me so much in her, in just the way she lived her life through the show. And, um, aside from English, I'm surprised I don't have this insane sounding accent because we were watching the BBC network shows of, are you being served? And Julia Child and Jacques Pepin. It's like, wow, how did we not end up with a crazy sounding accent? But, uh, Julia was this very, very nonchalant about her immense knowledge, like you just heard in that clip of like, no one's going to know. And that is when I started in the industry, started in pastry, it was very regimented, very boxed in. And then when I started working for Javier Placencia, who funny enough, her his family owns Hotel Caesars now. Uh, and I went through the Caesar, I call it the, you know, the a crucible of Caesar salad, where we had to learn exactly how to <laughs> make it by this table side manner. Um, And that kind of roundabout two degrees of separation with Julia of understanding what food is and to not take yourself so seriously and that mistakes can happen. The food still tastes good and give yourself a lot of grace, which I think she was like the queen of giving herself grace. And maybe, maybe not right. Maybe behind closed doors, she completely beat herself up. But I, there's so much of her that my takeaway is, just enjoy food 
we have one of the coolest jobs in the world that we get to eat for a living and taste and be curious. Uh, so my Julia moment was learning how to speak English with a very Julia um, magnifying glass. Oh, I love that. Now I'm wondering, could your mother do like Julia's voice? If I wish she was listening to it that <laughs> loud and that long, I was wondering if she d- did a Julia impression. Oh yeah, we would. Bon appetit was also. Was oh yeah, constantly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we uh, we. My dad immigrated into the states in the '60s from Jalisco, so uh, he was into LA particularly. So he was enamored by French cuisine. So while we were watching that, my mom was also making you know steamed artichokes with drawn butter and escargot from watching these shows on TV, which we were the house, the only house in TJ eating escargot. <laughs> and my dad found a can of escargot at some random bodega. Um, but we, yeah, I have so much to thank her for in the, in the optimism of what our food can be. And, uh, you know, trying everything once is something that I, I, my takeaway was from her. It was like, you know, taste it. And a lot of butter, which is like, I mean, words to live by, really. I love that. I love all those images and that picture you've painted of, of family <laughs> life at home in Tijuana with Julia and Jacques on the TV. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Claudette, for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. A pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. For more about Claudette's cooking, she's at Claudette Zapeta on Facebook and Twitter and at Claudette A. Zapeta on Instagram. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>